Welcome to Copcast. I'm Rumbi Chakamba, Associate Editor at DevEx, and I've headed to Sharm El Sheikh in Egypt for this year's United Nations Climate Conference. In this podcast series, we bring you inside the walls of the Blue Zone for a series of in-depth conversations with climate and development leaders, asking them the big questions. What's really needed to make meaningful progress towards climate goals and what role should the development community play to support that? It's easy to spend money. It's difficult to spend money well. What would you do if you had $10 billion to fight climate change? The Bezos Earth Fund is Jeff Bezos's $10 billion commitment to fund scientists, activists, NGOs, and other actors that will drive climate and nature solutions. DevEx's president and editor-in-chief, Raj Kumar, sat down with Andrew Steer, CEO of the fund, to talk about the kind of projects he's interested in and some of the misconceptions about the fund. This conversation was recorded as part of our event, DevEx at COP27. This is one of the conversations I am most looking forward to. I would do it anywhere, anytime, over a glass of wine with Andrew, those of you who know him. Uh, he, you can't get anyone better who knows kind of the inside of this space, of this nexus between development and climate. Of course, you spent much of your career at the World Bank, so you know this space very well. You were leading uh, World Resources Institute for eight years before, I don't know, did you get a phone call? Did Jeff, did you pick up the phone and there was Jeff Bezos saying, I've got $10 billion for you? How did that actually go? Oh, you actually want me I to really answer that question? I'm sure others um, do too. <laughs> well, before that, uh, uh, Raj, thank you very much uh, for what you're doing here. Um, uh, DevEx is, if you don't haven't signed up for DevEx Pro, sign up for it. What you have done, and you created the whole thing, I mean, and you are now bringing development back into climate in a very big way, and I'm very grateful for that, and development into nature in a very big way. So well done. And I think these events that you put on are also wonderful and your journalism is just first class. Um, so uh, yeah, I, it's, it's a privilege to, to see you know, how wealthy people are choosing to spend their wealth. And Jeff Bezos put uh, $10 billion um, uh, aside and said we will spend that down as grants in this decisive decade. So we're not going to set up a foundation that lasts 100 years. We're going to, um, uh, you know, honor the fact that these are truly urgent times. And so, um, so uh, the original relationship was actually um, as he was looking for ideas, um, and so he called up a few uh, CEOs of uh, environmental institutions and said, "Do you have any ideas?" And you know, I said, "No, not really. No, I didn't." I said, <laughs> "Let me give you five. <laughs> and he said, uh, "He said uh, they're all great, but let's pick two. And he made a large grant to the World Resource Institute um, of a hundred million dollars. So we were we were really grateful for that. And one of the one of the um, one of the programs was what we call Land and Carbon Lab, using satellite technology, um, uh, you know, ground truth with uh, you know drones and others to really uh, move forward uh, the science and technology, whereby not only can you see each tree falling in a 10 by 10 meter sort of grid, if you like, everywhere on the Earth's surface every week. But actually, you can also see trees regrowing, which has never, we've never been able to do that before. Um, now in sort of year three, four, five, you can start seeing regrowth. And you can also see land use change. And then 
through a lot of artificial intelligence and machine learning, you can actually figure out how much carbon is embedded in what's happening. So you actually can figure out the flux, the carbon flux, um, you know, every acre on the planet all the time. And that actually has quite a lot of implications if you're trying to figure out how well is it going. Um, right. And for many of the organizations here that are doing work to stop uh, deforestation, exactly. this is a way to actually tell. Did your economic, your livelihood inclusion work, did it actually get people to stop cutting down the rainforest? Well, exactly. I mean, for the first time when the, 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 the then president of Indonesia first saw Global Forest Watch and we showed it to him, this was Susila Bambang Yudhiono, so that was about five years ago. Um, uh, it, you know, he said, well, actually now for the first time, I know whether my policies in central Kalimantan are actually working because I can actually see that so it's um so i mean we are in a new age actually whereby technology can inform um decision making and hold accountable and there are people in this room that are involved in the holding accountable side of things and so it's very exciting and this is all free open access and what we can do now i mean just day before yesterday we announced um uh, further work on our african restoration story and basically that's tens of thousands of small farmers uh, that are actually doing it. Um, and it turns out you can actually get shape files for everything now. And it's, I mean, once you, once you get that, you just put it in the machine and you actually will know whether or not it's working. And so you'll, you'll be able to sort of, we'll all be able to hold each other accountable a lot more. So it is exciting. Right. Yes. The AI can look at those images from the satellite and read that's a tree or, you know, that's yeah. a, that's an acre of farmland and actually see yes. what's happening and you can get that intelligence from it. And that started with you, you said a hundred million dollar grant when you were at WRI. And that wasn't just for this one. There was another project as well, which was um, uh, electrifying or electrifying the 480,000 school buses in the United States. Um, now that costs a lot more than a hundred million dollars, <laughs> but, but we've been working on the policies and the laws and it's actually, you know, the average... Uh, poor child in, a, in America um, uh, goes to school on a diesel-powered bus and breathes air equivalent to standing in on the streets of New Delhi. I mean, it's really, really stunning. And because education in the United States is a county-level responsibility, and there are, what, 3,200 counties in America, um, poor counties have less money to buy new buses and less money to maintain those buses. And so, uh, uh, so this is actually a health thing. But by the way, it also um, reduces carbon emissions. And by the way, it creates a whole generation of young children who understand electrification and talk to their parents about it. And you link curriculum development in the school to this idea. And then in those long summer hot months in America where school buses don't do anything, they actually do do something because they become giant batteries. Mm. If you have 480,000 electric buses with that, you can save, I'm making this up, but I think it's right, 100 uh, power plants that you don't need because you then can move towards taking electricity off the grid when it's not needed and putting it back into the grid when it is needed. You presumably know I mean? for emergencies, yeah. that's a great source of power. It's a, that's a good example maybe because you know, there's this idea of catalytic philanthropy. And I, I think that's the zone you're in, right? You said the school bus, just an example, are so expensive, but you're working on the policy and the yeah. advocacy. You're trying to get the markets to work better. Um, but you also have a pretty sizable fund here. You've got $10 billion to spend down. You spent a billion and a half, a billion a year or so. 
that's a lot too, just to be catalytic. That's a lot on just policy advocacy. So how are you thinking about what you fund? I mean, in a way, are you finding it hard to, to spend a billion dollars a year? That seems, again, against the climate crisis, it might seem like a drop in the bucket. Mm. But with this catalytic lens, it, it might actually be a challenge. How are you finding that experience trying to spend that money down? Well, we, we, we certainly don't try and spend a billion a year. We would we'll ramp up to that, I think. I mean, so far, we've been going almost two years now. Yeah, I guess two years, and we've we've dispersed 1.6 billion. Um, but, but you're right, I mean, it's easy to spend money, it's difficult to spend money well, and most philanthropy to date has been very honorable and effective, but it's been unleveraged. Basically, you put, you know, a dollar into healthcare and you get a very high quality dollar of improved healthcare out. You don't leverage other money that comes in for the most part, and you don't, most part, you don't leverage policy change. So the way we look at it is um, we co-manage something called the System Change Lab. Um, and what that does is it looks at the 50 to 70 sort of transitions that need to take place this decade and the next. Like in the transportation sector, yeah, agriculture. Get, getting rid of the internal combustion engine, reducing food loss and waste by 50%. Reforming financial markets, you know, all of them with metrics. And so, but they just launched their annual report last week called the State of Climate Action, where they monitor, they look at 40 indicators. And what we do, try and do then is ask each of these transitions, there is a positive tipping point after which change becomes sort of irresistible and unstoppable. And what, what we try and do in that is we identify how close are they to tipping points and what are the barriers that could be removed potentially to get you to that tipping point. And sometimes it's basic research. Um, sometimes it's political advocacy. Sometimes it's monitoring and accountability. Sometimes it's just plain de-risking of private investment. You know, So there's a whole range of, if you like, um, instruments or levers one can pull as a philanthropy. So for, well, first one has to decide which, which uh, transition do we think we could get the biggest bang for the buck on, and then how do you actually engage? Now that sounds very sophisticated, like we, we've got our act together. <laughs> it's actually quite hard to do, but that is, that's in principle how we are going about it. Um, right, you know, looking, for those, looking for those tipping points that we can push something across. Are you interested in the intersection of business and social impact? Do you want to know how corporate sustainability, ESG, impact investing, and more can contribute to development finance? My name is Adva Saldinger. I'm a senior reporter at DevEx, and I've been reporting on these issues for nearly a decade. I'm the author of DevEx Invested, our free weekly newsletter dedicated to development finance. Every Tuesday, we explore how companies, investors, and market mechanisms are reshaping the world of development finance. Visit devx.com newsletters and join us on Tuesdays. In this era in philanthropy, there's a tension between the very strategic philanthropies. I put the Gates Foundation in that lane, right? Hiring consultants doing large PowerPoints, studying and analyzing exactly the kinds of things you're talking about and saying, this is where we're going to enter. And maybe the McKenzie Scott 
you know, trust-based mm -hmm. approach. Again, she's far on the extreme of that spectrum, but there are other philanthropists that are starting to say, no, it's about trust. You find the, the best local group and you just write them a check. Yeah. Where do you sit on that spectrum? Uh, that's a fantastic question. Um, uh, look, I mean, one thing we say to ourselves and others often um, is, look, let's not kid ourselves. Um, uh, this must not be a position of, of power just because we have the privilege of managing very precious resources. Let's remember the partners that we work with have been working on these issues for a long time. They have deep, deep professional um, knowledge and experience, and we should respect that. Um, and we need to be demand-driven, not just by the NGOs we work with, but by the communities they are working with. And so, um, so I, I think we would be very much that side. Having said that, um, you know, there are we do need to do the analysis of where we feel we should intervene, and um, and so to that extent, that decision I suppose is ours. So getting that balance, that that this is a tension, and one has to sort of hold both sides in the right balance. Um, and and you're quite right. I mean, there are some philanthropies that that. That, that that understandably feel, wait a minute, I mean, we've got to manage these funds, we're, we're going to make decisions, we'll decide, and you work for us. A bit like some aid agencies, like a USAID is very different from what, you know, the old DFID would have been, What for it example. used to be. What, when, I, when I worked for DFID. <laughs> Andrew was a director general there years ago. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, essentially, if you work for USAID, um, it will be a line item often in, that's been decided in, you know, by the government, and, and you respond to that. Now, that's not always that. They do grants as well. Um, but uh, so th there is, as you say, a spectrum, and maybe different problems require different parts of the spectrum. You brought up the kind of official aid infrastructure. Let's go a little further down that road, because I think... Maybe the big headline coming out of this COP is going to be about the two kind of untapped sources of funds that are still there, that are still out there and not aligned fully. One is philanthropy. That's, of course, what your day job is all about. But the other is the multilateral development banks. The World Bank may be at the pinnacle of that issue, but many others as well. And there's a push, a big push. It's been building for a long time, but it seems like maybe it's reaching a moment, a tipping point at this COP around completely reforming these MDBs to go from traditional lending to actually using their funds as a kind of leverage and blended finance to dramatically increase the numbers. John Kerry yesterday was saying we could get to four or five hundred billion a year from the MDBs and if you leverage that up you could get to a trillion a year and that's the kind of thing we would need to see. Do you think that's right, that model? Is that where the MDBs should go? Are you pushing for that right now? And do you think it's happening at this COP? Um, yes, uh, that should happen. Um, and uh, you've probably seen the, the, the Nick Stern, Vera Songway mm -hmm. report that came out two days ago. We were with Vera and Nick this morning, actually, um, uh, where they are recommending a pretty quick tripling of, engage of financial engagement. But, I mean, it is important to sort of know the history and know what needs to happen. I mean, what could happen. So the, the, the problem is, number one, the multilateral development banks want to stay too safe. In other words, they have believed that actually if you want to keep your AAA rating, you need what's called a preferred creditor status, which means, you know, I lend you some money, other people lend money, 
you always have to pay me back first. And the problem with that is that doesn't de-risk anything. <laughs> well, it risks not de-risking anything because, well, actually they should be in a, in a more risky part of the so-called capital stack than that. So, um, so, you know, that's one thing that needs to change. And last month, some rating agencies came out and said, actually, you could lend a lot more and still keep your AAA rating. So that's one thing. Some said that. Some had a different some, view, some right? Different DevX view. reported yeah. Fitch exactly. says no. Exactly. S&P says yes. So it's really important not to throw the baby out with the bathwater here. Um, uh, you know, it was John Maynard Keynes and then the Treasury Secretary of the United States, Harry White, 1944, had this idea of creating. It was a very clever idea. That you know, capital is of two kinds. It's called callable capital, which you don't even give. You just say, if if a disaster comes, I will give you that. And then paid in capital is a small part of that, which you actually have to do. And then the idea was that you can you can borrow to multiple of that. And what's happened is you can't borrow at a multiple of the of the callable capital. So an innovation that's happening now in education, for example, something called the International Financing Facility for Education, is saying it's being created this month in Switzerland. Uh, Gordon Brown, Ontario uh, Guterres and others launched it in uh, at, at Unger this year. And the, the beauty of it is that actually instead of a callable capital, you put a you give a guarantee. You still don't have to pay it. You still keep it in your treasury you don't have to put it on your national accounts or your budget accounts if you're, if you're the UK or European countries. You do in the United States. The beauty of that is that you can actually borrow multiples of that as well. So you put 15% of, of cash in, that gets multiplied 27 times. But then, of course, you don't want to just lend it as expensive debt. What you want, you then want some more cash to pull down the interest rates. And so what, what, what we need to think about much more is that most bilateral aid and most philanthropic aid is provided sort of directly to countries. No leverage. Actually, if you use that money to bring down interest rates, you could provide highly subsidized loans, which you don't want for everything, but you certainly want more of them if we're going to do the kind of scaling that John Kerry was talking about yesterday. But can this happen quickly, right? You worked at the World Bank for many, many years. Are the people who work at the World Bank even ready to do this kind of financial engineering? I mean, most of them have been there for a long time doing very traditional lending programs. You talk about the banks wanting to be really safe. Isn't it also a question of do they have the right staff? Do they have the right culture? Can they shift quickly enough for the crisis we're in to meet, you know, John Kerry saying by next, by this year's spring meetings, you know, coming up in early 2023, can we see them turn as quickly as is needed? Oh, uh, yeah. I, I wouldn't blame the staff of the World Bank. I mean, the staff of the World Bank actually um, follow the leadership, and the leadership comes from the owners of the World Bank. So the question really is, okay, Mr. Kerry, which I agree with him, by the way, we launched with him yesterday something on, on carbon markets, um, uh, is the United States going to back this? You know, that's the number one shareholder. Are you in? Are you in? Now, here's the thing. Under traditional general capital increases, that would require the United States, pari passu with all other countries, to increase their capital, which would take forever to negotiate. The beauty of the other, the other idea that I just mentioned, the, the callable it, uh, capital, yeah. the, 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 the guarantees, is you can do that at the coalition of the willing. So European countries and then the United States might come in, China might come in, who knows. So, so yeah, I mean, if you had the right leadership of the World Bank, if you had a president 
I was asking Nick Stern and Vera this morning, if you became president of the World Bank tomorrow, what would you do in your first week? You would summon your governors, what would you ask them? And, you know, th that would be the question. I mean, at the end of the day, it is countries of the world that own these institutions. So my own view is um, the, the staff of the World Bank, very smart, and staff of the uh, other regional banks are smart, they would follow leadership, which they're not getting at the moment. Well, I mean, I, no, I don't mean to be unkind. I mean, I'm saying that- You the, can be unkind. No, no, I don't want to be unkind. No, I mean, I think, I think some of the banks are actually showing some good leadership now. I think European Bank, Asian Bank, doing very interesting things. Uh, the ADB is just starting something called IFCAP, which is that same kind of idea for, for climate change. Um, but when I say leadership, what I really mean is the ownership structure um, of, of these institutions. It's the nations of the world that need to make a decision. Now, let me ask you in our closing minutes here about the overall view on where we are on climate. I mentioned at the beginning, so much energy at this COP, such a sense of ambition. On the other hand, it's the best year ever for fossil fuel companies, $2 trillion in profits. I've never seen a moment like this. And if you talk to finance ministers from low and middle income countries, of course they care about climate, but they're also saying food prices are up, fuel prices are up. You know, they're looking at the opportunity some like Senegal to export natural gas and saying, why not? And we need to do this. And European countries are saying, we need it. We need that natural gas. So are we in a way backsliding at this moment where you're talking about all this ambition and many people in this room are working on these plans to transition, but will we look back at 2022 and say, actually, this was the backsliding cop because the narrative shifted and we lost half a decade or a decade where everybody said we have to reinvest in liquid natural gas ports in Europe and developing countries said we've got to expand our production. How do you see this moment? Uh, I think, I think um, we are seeing things at the moment which we really didn't want to see. Um, so we're seeing, you know, countries like the Democratic Republic of Congo saying, wait a minute, I mean, I see Mr. Biden flying to Saudi Arabia to ask for more oil to be pumped, and I see Germany using more coal, um, so maybe I should be exploring in um, this precious tropical ecosystem for, for oil, and um, unless someone can help me out to find another solution. And what we haven't done, I think, is shown the alternative path for the Democratic Republic of Congo, for example, um, that would get them to, to, a, to a better place. So uh, we're also seeing, you know, some of the incredibly wonderful decisions and commitments made last year, including the $130 trillion under GFANS. We're seeing that because of legal structures in the United States where basically you're not allowed to do anything that could be interpreted as, um, you know, uh, uh, antitrust, so to speak, where you, you, uh, uh, you, 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 you get together to make a decision. So we're seeing just a little bit of unraveling of that. Having said that, I mean, I think the, the, uh, the promises that were made were so um, positive that even if, you know, 90% of them get delivered rather than 120% of them get delivered, we're still in a winning ticket. But the, the truth of the matter is, as you're implying, Raj, is that, um, as we, I said in an a op-ed that came out yesterday, um, that, you know, if you ask two experts here uh, that really understand climate, how's it going? One of them will say, it's amazing. 
progress we're making. You know, I mean, far greater than we thought. You know, I mean, solar energy costs 99.5% less than it did when Jimmy Carter put solar panels on the White House in 1979. And my goodness me, last year, solar energy and renewable energy was twice as much as it was just two years, etc. I mean, you can say that. And the other person will say, we're going off a cliff and, um, and we're a bunch of lemmings and um, goodbye. And, and the question is, they can't both be right, can they? And the answer is yes, they can. Both of them are right. And sort of, the image is, you know, a, a, a dog chasing a bus with the dog doing better and better. I mean, we are driving down those cost curves, we're investing in great things, and we're running faster, and we've never run this faster. We're very pleased with ourselves. The bus is accelerating away. It's the problem, so to speak. And of course, the answer is not to keep trying running faster and faster. The dog will never catch the bus. The dog is to give, the, the trick is to, for the dog to find another, another instrument, another vehicle, electric scooter or something, to get on to catch up the bus. That, it's doing things different, which I think endeavor exactly what you're trying to think through. How do, we, how do we stop doing the same things? How do we do things differently? How do we design instruments? How do we include people more? For example, you know, landscape restoration in Africa. Its time has come. There are, you know, there are 200 million hectares in Africa whereby carbon dioxide molecules up in the sky that are killing people could be brought down to earth through the magic of photosynthesis into trees and bushes and crops and soils and they bring life and they double income for poor farmers and they bring resilience to those crops and so on. If we had the right leadership, we could just, we could just do this. We put in $50 million two, two days ago with the idea of trying to catalyze that. But if we had the, with the right leadership, whether it's the multilateral development banks, whether it's of countries, NGOs, if we really came together and had some sort of summit meetings, people that can actually make decisions as opposed to have conversations and opinions, actually, I mean, and that's exactly what the sort of thing that you guys write about all the time. Thanks. So we've got to get you off stage and me off stage. But one last very quick question. Somebody with a $10 billion checkbook is a hot ticket uh, at COP or at any other conference. You have lots of people coming to you. What is the one thing people kind of get wrong about the Bezos Earth Fund that you would like people to understand better? What's that one thing in just 30 seconds? Um, well, uh, sometimes even big governments would do deals and they sort of look at philanthropy and they assume we're the rich uncles that all you have to do is smile nicely and slap them on the back and take them to dinner and then, you know, come on, yes, come on, put in a hundred million dollars here. And actually, um, we have sharp pencils too. We actually need to do the analysis. So if you really want us to engage, let's engage early on. Let's move away from um, from assuming that sort of you know the government to government is the solution, and also move away from assuming just NGOs. We need a much more multi-stakeholder sort of um, sort of approach here. But look, I mean, I think we are totally committed to people as well as nature and climate, and we've put a lot of resources already into environmental justice. We just made $300 million available to the U.S. groups 
with the idea of leveraging um, money that comes from the federal government. Federal government's putting tens of billions of dollars to green investment. Very little of that will go to poor areas in the United States. And the reason is that the way that financial flows in the federal budget, they go down to the state, the city, and then basically you need to you need to claim that money. So what we're doing as a way of leverage is, is trying to empower the social justice groups that are actually on the ground so they will know how to pull in that and they will they will build the capacity to do that. And that's that's the sort of thing that when people come to us, that's the sort of thing we love to be asked about. I did just want to say when we talked about restoration, Wanjira Mathai is over there. Yeah. The, the, I was going to say you're the mother of, uh, you know, I guess your mother was the mother of African restoration, but um, uh, she, she's working with us and advising us on our on our Africa program. I guess you're going to hear from her later on. We will. I'm glad, yeah. glad you're here, Wanjira. Yeah. Well, I, I want everyone to join me in thanking Andrew Steer for this fantastic conversation yeah. and Thank for you, all Robert. the good work you're doing. Thank Thanks you. so much. Thanks for listening to Copcast. We'll be publishing episodes every day throughout COP27. So make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform. And if you've enjoyed today's episode, please share it with others you think would be interested in it. You can also leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. If you have some feedback about this episode that you want to share or are at COP and want to let us know what we should be covering, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on social media at devx and at rumbichakamba underscore or you can drop us an email at podcast at devx.com.